It is indeed our marked privilege, as was mentioned in prayer, for each of us to be able to assemble together today. The degree of health that we each have been given, the character that things are well enough with us to permit us to assemble like this, it truly is a blessing that each of us can appreciate as we begin this new week in our livelihood and our service to the God of heaven. As you well know, the Bible Bowl, as was mentioned earlier in the announcements, does take place this coming Saturday. So let's continue to think about the wellness of our uh, participants from this congregation, that all may be well, and that, of course, they'll have a good day participating in that Bible Bowl effort. We have been now for a couple of weeks giving consideration to some of the matters concerning marriage as it's laid forth in the Scriptures. In fact, today is the third installment in that brief series, and as a part of that, we have noted a number of matters to help us appreciate the role that marriage plays in terms of God's deliverance and also the manner by which we can even improve our own understanding of and participation in marriage. In fact, this is a brief review of some of those matters that we have considered. We first of all noted that in our current world, marriage finds itself often at the sad end of jokes, at the sad end of trivialities, and at the sad end of somewhat an insulting character. Many do not view it as God does. Many look upon it in a way that's almost a besmirched character. However, we found in the Bible that God lifts it very highly. Marriage is honorable in all, Hebrews 13, 4. We noted as we studied several characteristics by which God has described it and which can be used to help us even think more deeply of it. In that first lesson, we looked at seven characteristics, namely that it's a divine arrangement in the sense that God, in fact, originated it. Humanity did not. Furthermore, the honor is to be seen in the fact that there is one woman for one man for life. The permanency to be seen with it also reminds us that there are to be three involved in it, the man, the woman, and God. And finally, we saw in that opening lesson that text of Genesis 2.24 where the husband leaves father and mother, cleaves into his wife, and of course they twain become one flesh. Last Sunday we looked at five more characteristics, the appreciation with which the Scriptures describe it, how that the writer of Proverbs often calls upon us to remember that in reflection marriage is not just an arrangement like a Lions Club or Rotary Club, it is a far more appreciative matter in that it's the bedrock for the family. There's to be love and affection, trust and patience described in various ways in both Old and New Testaments alike. Today, let us come and look at some more characteristics as it is in fact related to us concerning the matter of marriage. As we do all of this, our goal, as it always has been, is to simply allow God to speak to us about these things I continue to number them from where we left off last Sunday, which makes the opening point today point number 13. Point 13, unselfish character in marriage. We in many ways can even broaden our appreciation somewhat of unselfishness because isn't it true that so many of the difficulties and problems that our world in general suffers ultimately becomes the case because of selfishness. An individual lifts himself or herself and my needs and my wants above those of others and often runs somewhat trampling over the feelings and cares and desires and even well-being of others. That too can happen in marriage, can't it? 
one of the partners begins to behave somewhat selfishly and in doing so actually disrespects and even insults in some ways the nature and the appreciation of, of the mate. I've tried to state that in this way. It still is to be powerfully noted, isn't it, from the creation record of Genesis chapter 2, that at that point when the man it was appreciated was alone, it was God who formed from his side, from his rib a woman. God didn't form her from his feet so that he would trample on her. He didn't form her from his head that she would reign and rule over him. He formed her from Adam's side to be his helpmeet, his companion. In light of that, I would ask you to notice that Ephesians 5.25 describes that degree of unselfishness like this. Husbands, he wrote, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. In what way did the Lord act unselfishly with respect to the church? That's easy to answer, isn't it? The Lord, knowing very well the saga that would come before Him in terms of the cross and in terms of all that surrounded it, the agony, the difficulty, the scourging, all of it, He knew fully well what was coming, and yet He firmly and with great power and with great determination underwent all of that. Did He not love the church then? And did He not unselfishly give Himself for her? You and I know that He gave Himself for you and me. You and I would have no opportunity to stand with forgiveness of sins were it not for Him. Romans 5.8 describes it like this. It makes note of the fact, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, what unselfishness was seen in the cross. And yet to husbands it is there said, Appreciate, love your wife in that way. That is a marvelous note of unselfishness, isn't it? You'll notice, though, that that isn't the only passage. In that love chapter of the New Testament, that charity chapter, if you please, in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse number 4, the inspired apostle therein said that charity seeketh not her own. What does that phrase suggest? Seeketh not her own. Well, may we, in fact, give some note to the following. The translation, another translation that reads that, points it in these words. It does not insist on its own way. You'll notice that does relate to the concept of selfishness, doesn't it? A married couple understands the fact that the maid is going to have good ideas too, and the maid is going to have needs and desires and appreciations in life, and they must be respected. And if each will do that, it will lead to a loving and harmonious relationship in which there is trust and patience and in which neither one, to the hurtfulness or disrespect of the other, lifts his or her own needs and wants higher than where they really ought to in fact be held. Love seeketh not its own. It is an appreciation that love, of course, looks upon the great value and appreciation of the mate. Isn't it amazing to listen to the words of Ruth in Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17? Now, we understand this was prior to her meeting of Boaz, but nonetheless, the words are so telling because it speaks of a character of unselfishness. Quite often, we lift so high the book of Ruth, and we think about the nature of her clinging to and assistance of and help for her aged mother-in-law, Naomi. But on that occasion, she said, Entreat me not to leave thee. 
nor to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God, and where thou diest will I die. And there will I be buried, and may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Naomi, you see, had the appreciation of a daughter-in-law who not only understood that she perhaps in life couldn't take care of herself at that point as well as she would like, but Ruth was committed and dedicated to being there as an assistant and as a loving daughter-in-law to her. As you and I think about the character of human beings, don't we know it all too well? We each can tend to be selfish if we aren't careful. Be that at the work site, be that in our homes, sometimes even in the church. We can demand on matters of expediency, well, it must be my way. And if it's not, I'm not going to be too happy about it. And rest assured that someone who's frowning and grumpy, and someone who in fact makes others' life so unpleasant and uncomfortable, quite often the root cause may well be unselfish, or rather selfishness. Doesn't it point us how that even in a marriage that can be the case? It becomes a bit of a misery, doesn't it? When you imagine that one always has to be the great one and the other feels as if his ideas or her ideas are unimportant, as if his ideas or her perspectives are in fact not even of interest. Paul goes on, of course, to say also this, Love is not puffed up. Charity is not puffed up, and notice, it isn't arrogant. Love is not overly prideful. Love understands the value and worth of the mate. Love understands the worth and value of self. For even the Lord commanded, Love your neighbor as you love yourself, Matthew 22. Thus, one does have a proper appreciation of self, but not overly so. Love doesn't puff oneself up. There is a need for humility then in a marriage. There's a need for humility in so many arrangements and discussions of life. Braggadocio considerations, being a braggart, that's not a proper matter, either in marriage or elsewhere. It is fair to say in light of all of these things that in marriage the, oh, the whole idea is not anything other than us. It's our. It's not you and me separately. In marriage, it's we and it's us. And one makes a grave dangerous consideration if one begins to think more of your and mine rather than ours and us and we. Marriage is one flesh. That's the way God three times in the Holy Scriptures describes it. And one does not mean two. These two, by the choice and decision they've made, have been bound together by the power and majesty of God, Matthew 19, 6, into one flesh. It is in light of that. Not only might there be selfishness then that one should give serious consideration to, but also another. The matter of the appearance of kindness in marriage. I highlight that and say that in the following way, because in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, as Paul describes love, he said that love is kind. Now we each understand what a noble quality and what a desirable characteristic kindness can be. I think we can each appreciate the word really means to be kind, to show oneself as gentle or mild. And a kind disposition is such an attractive thing, isn't it? 
I think we each enjoy the appreciation and the principle of what kindness brings. In Proverbs 19.22, we are reminded on that occasion that that which maketh a man to be desired is his kindness. We each seemingly take note in a world that so often is unkind, a world that so often displays meanness and ugliness. Those who are kind-spirited and those who are kind-hearted often stand out in a noble way. And certainly in marriage, there should be an element of kindness. As you give thought with me to some of those notes that I have for us to consider, one of the things in that marriage is that each mate should appreciate that he or she is the apple of his or her eye, meaning the mate. That you're special, not just like others, not just like every other man or woman, as the case may be, but that you are the one specifically chosen that that person in marriage vow agreed till death do us part. A lifetime commitment was made. Now, there are many things in our world that fall far short of a lifetime arrangement. You make a deal on something, you approach some particular activity, but once it's paid off or once some other matter is satisfied, then the arrangement terminates, but it is not so in marriage. Jesus said, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Matthew 19, verse number 6. Thus, in kindness, one appreciates that there's a special gleam. The apple, if you please, of the mate's eye is the mate. The finality and the consideration of it helps us see throughout the Bible what a rich consideration kindness can be. Be ye kind one to another, reads Ephesians 4.32. That was even a consideration of generic membership in the church. So how much more should kindness be a part to play? in the life of these two bound together by the power and love that not only they have for each other, but their love for the God of heaven. Kindness. Let that mate know just how thankful you are for him or her by acts of kindness. Doing things for him or her, appreciative of what you know that they like and what they enjoy. That kindness might well even be seen by some things that are not present in marriage. Certainly as one specifies and makes known one's feelings or one's thoughts on a given subject, it can become the case that there is too much complaining or too much grumbling. As often as the children of Israel murmured and complained in the Old Testament, we will understand that that kind of behavior is not a noble or desirable one. But there are even more than that. In Proverbs 21 verse 9 as well as Proverbs 25 verse 21, there is a realization even in that case of how in the home excessive grumbling, complaining, excessiveness of that way is not a good characteristic. It leads to an unpleasantness. It leads to difficulty. And for that reason, of course, that ought to be kept to its minimum. In 1 Peter 4 verse number 9, we notice even complaining, excessively so of course, ought to always be kept in its proper arrangement and place. You notice with me that all of that has to do, doesn't it, with the exhibition of kindness. In marriage, as one thinks about not being selfish, but rather exhibiting kindness, that will lead to an endearment between that husband and wife. A strong fortification against a world that is selfish and that is not kind. It makes coming home at the end of the day a very pleasant and something to which one looks forward. 
No wonder that kind of marriage is such a lasting one on so many occasions. As you can see at the bottom, what about the exhibition of anger? What about those times when one does become angry or upset? How should that display itself? In what manner might one give thought to some verses that could help make sure that that's tempered in the right way? We all understand there are times when life seems to bring the points that lead to anger, that lead to being upset, that lead to being a bit mad. One of the first things to be noted is we're human beings and it seems as if that's going to be a natural occurrence. This husband and wife, there are going to be times that things happen. Circumstances take place. Events unfold, perhaps prompted by others, perhaps prompted by something internal. But be that as it may, how does one deal with anger in that fashion? First of all, we should well appreciate that it is of its basic nature wrong to be angry. Didn't, in fact, Paul write, Be ye angry and sin not, Ephesians 4.26. Thus, when those times come, when there's agitation, when there's a bit of madness or anger, so long as it doesn't manifest itself or exhibit itself in a way that becomes sinful or harmful to the mate, then there couldn't be said to be any sin in the anger, at least at that point. But of course, that is a big if, isn't it? When I become angry, how do I express that in a way that doesn't lead to sin? How do I deal with my mate in a way that does not lead to a sinful circumstance or that tempts her to do so? Here's some thoughts about it. First of all, the New Testament also has words to say concerning it. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we notice that love does not behave itself unseemly. That again means love doesn't behave itself inappropriately. It doesn't behave itself improperly. When one loves one's mate, even in times of anger, that love should nonetheless supersede in brilliance and in valor to the where one does not behave unseemly toward him or toward her. One doesn't behave inappropriately. One should be in enough control of one's emotions, enough control of one's feelings, such that that command of self-control would nonetheless still be able to guard and guide so that things aren't said that ought not be, things aren't done that ought not be. Again, love does not behave itself inappropriately. But not only that, love is not easily provoked. In marriage, it's important that the two don't wear your feelings to the point on your sleeve that everything that is said and everything that is done agitates and leads to strife. There needs to be a greater sense of harmony than that. Love is not easily provoked. Now, can love be provoked? Sure, it can be, but it ought not be easily done. There needs to be enough patience and trust and confidence in the mate so that it isn't easily provoked relative to the things that are done or said. Isn't it fascinating to give some thought to these points? You might notice that third point. We noted earlier, be ye angry and sin not. We mustn't allow our anger to prompt us to act in a way toward our mate that's sinful. Saying ugly things to them, saying mean things to them, hurtful things to them or perhaps even physically doing things to them, again, that's not only mean or ugly, but perhaps even damaging to the marriage bond and relationship per se. 
disagreements when they arise. It's important to strive to work those out reasonably quickly. In that same chapter, Paul said, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't go to bed mad. If there's any way to avoid it, if there's any way to help it, fix it. Make an approach to, in fact, remedy and bring harmony to the matter before that day comes to a close. If it lingers, it might fester. If it lingers, it might result in additional difficulties or problems. He says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Deal with it in a timely and orderly and reasonable fashion, if at all that's possible. So many problems in light of that. Whether it be in this term that we're discussing, this anger exhibition, so many difficulties in a marriage. It seems arise because of a lack of communication. A lack of simply talking. Expressed to her, expressed to him by verbal language. God gave us a tongue. Let us use it. She can't read your mind and you can't read hers. When you express thoughts... Feelings, emotions to one another, that gives an opportunity to work it out in so, so many ways. One of the greatest attributes that leads to the problems along this line is simply misunderstanding. He didn't mean what you interpreted him to have said. She didn't mean what you thought you heard her say. But as long as there's discussion, you quickly learn, well, I interpreted it wrong. That's not what she meant. That's not what he said. But you notice that requires us to communicate, speak with each other. Isn't it interesting that that tongue from James chapter 3, as powerful as it is, it can be used in the way that's right, and it can be used in the way that's noble and godly. In fairness, you might notice, if that anger does allow itself to remain, past the sun going down and past the additional times that come, it can, of course, lead to bitterness. It can lead to a sense of grudging character. A sense of developmental wrath even begins to grow. And that, of course, not only is unhealthy for the marriage, it's unhealthy for the person, period. To walk around always with that kind of load upon one's mind. It is interesting that in Colossians 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul expressly wrote to husbands and said, Be not bitter against them. Husbands ought not to, in fact, treat their wives in a way that is developed into a sense of bitterness or that purposefully strives to engender bitterness in her. Now, frankly, the wife needs to be ever aware of that too. But you see, that bitterness, God says there, is sinful and it's wrong and it's inappropriate. Husbands ought not strive then to act in a way to embitter them. We understand so well that the husband, of course is the physically stronger of the two sexes. And that would mean that he could, by his choice on occasion, behave toward her in a way that would embitter her. But Paul says that is not to be done. In fairness, as you come to one of the final comments concerning that, love does not envy. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 and 5 says, Love envieth not. We each appreciate, I think, in times that that could also be a challenge. Maybe one of the marriage partners is blessed by God with a talent, a sufficiently noble talent, and the other maybe does not have a talent like that. It's always important to understand that there ought not be any envy. 
If that person by God is able to utilize and employ a talent to the service of God's kingdom or perhaps for the well-being of the human family, as those two work together in marriage, they each can support and encourage one another in the application and in the employment of those talents. And it's a beautiful thing to behold, a husband and wife team that can work together, formulating, assisting, and helping to bring about the good things that their talents by God allow them to do. The fascination of all of that notes again. This third point has been the exhibition of anger touches a number of subjects. Maybe a fourth point. With it, what else does God say that might assist us as we think about marriage? The notation and the characteristic of forgiveness. There are times, in light of what we've just said, anger can be allowed to go too far. Maybe something is said. Maybe something is done that in retrospect was not only inappropriate, but in fact hurtful or harmful to the person of the other or to the marriage itself. It is for that matter that forgiveness might well be a point we should discuss. We know well that forgiveness is such a vital point throughout the entirety of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, because it's only in that way, of course, we can stand rightly before God, having our sins forgiven. The basic notion of forgiveness might well begin like this. There is a relationship that has been severed. Something has happened that has drawn a careful and powerful wedge in it. It's caused a severing. Forgiveness is the intent to bring that relationship back to where it once was. We know that when we sin, those sins separate us from God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. It is when those sins are forgiven that we can come back to Him, be reconciled to Him in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and 20. In marriage, that harmonious union, when one of them does say something that's mean or particularly ugly, maybe particularly insulting, or when one does something that might well be in the same character then, there suddenly is a bit of a division. There's hard feelings. There's difficulty, uncomfort, awkwardness, and a bit of strife. Forgiveness is what's going to allow that to come back together. Forgiveness can, of course, be a challenging thing sometimes because pride may well enter. She's the one that did that. He's the one that said that. But when that one is humble enough to ask for forgiveness and to exhibit repentance, the other, by the nature of God's command, must be willing to offer it. After all, what is said in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15 about us, God will forgive us when we forgive others. If we thus are unwilling to forgive others, is not God going to be unwilling to forgive us? That's the condition upon which His forgiveness of us is predicated. It is in light of that I would ask you to notice Luke 17, verse 3. If thy brother sin against thee, the Lord goes on to say, if he repent, forgive him. In our marriages too, isn't that an interesting thing to know? When that husband or wife, upon a moment of reflection or perhaps consideration of what he or she did or said, then says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that and I apologize. Will you forgive me? Will you allow me? Will you allow us to proceed in a harmonious place and way as before? That mate should have a willingness to try that, 
to understand on the premise of this that you and I are to have the mind of Christ and wasn't He a forgiving one? Those on the cross who nailed nails into His feet and hands and yet on the cross He had the nerve to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do, Luke 23, 34. You and I thus should work toward having also a disposition of forgiveness for if we don't, those times in marriage when anger prevails may well ultimately lead to further and further division and further and further problems. It might well be noted and along, along that same line, well, I may forgive for a while, but I'm not going to forget it. And the next time that something difficult happens, I'm going to make mention of it again. Friend, that's not forgiveness. It should be an intent that once that's forgiven to let that be a part of the past. Isn't that the way God deals with us? Wouldn't it be awful if upon our repentance and our understanding of God's forgiveness, we nonetheless knew that He's still going to bring that up and hold it against me. But yet God says in Psalm 103, verses 12 and following, our sins are taken as far as the east is from the west. And Micah 7, verse 18, loudly shouts the passage, He has removed our iniquities from us. We should strive when we forgive to appreciate that that kind of behavior is a necessary matter. We certainly should hope that self-control won't allow things to get to this point. But if it does, isn't it amazing that love thinketh no evil? Again, taken from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 through 8. Love doesn't think the negative of the maid, doesn't dream up evil and ungodly things about them, but appreciates that when each are bound together by the power of God to the Word of God, that that maid has the best of intentions too and is striving toward a reality in which that marriage is the ideal one as described in the Word of God. For all those reasons, we come to the 17th and final installment of this entire series of lessons. Without any doubt, the single most valuable and important thing to make a successful, harmonious, loving, and godly marriage is for the two, the man and the woman, to be committed, Christians to the way of God. When each one will bow in submission to the God of heaven and give the fullness of his or her intent and will to the accomplishment of God's will, they will act rightly toward the mate. Whatever problems that will arise, and likely they shall be few, will be able to be handled rightly, quickly and appropriately, and the love of God through them will prevail toward one another. Thus, it is, again, back to the fact that in marriage there's three. There is the man, there is the woman, but there is God. He's the one that joined them, Matthew 19, verse 6. And it is through Him that the honor of marriage is seen, Hebrews 13, verse number 4. So the question for each of us, and questions for youngsters who perhaps are contemplating marriage at some point in the future. Make sure to let God be the guide in that marriage. Let Him be the one at the steering wheel. He needs to be directing both your life and the life of your mate, and He needs to be steering that marriage in the way it ought to go. And if He is the guide, if He is the director, if you please, then that marriage will be a blessed and ideal estate paradise upon earth, if you please. Some comments about it. Again, from 1 Corinthians 13. Isn't it amazing that 
love rejoices not in iniquity. But iniquity is opposed to the Word of God. That means love gives attention to the things of God. And it strives to be a godly mate, a wife or husband as the case may be. We notice that love rejoices in the truth. Also taken from 1 Corinthians 13. I'm reminded of a little verse both in the book of 2 John and the book of 3 John. In which John there wrote, I have no greater delight than to see thy children walking in truth. John found it so loving and beautiful to appreciate that there were families guided by individuals and those children even were walking in truth. Suffice it to say, they must have seen it embodied in their parents and those who had opportunity to influence them. As the emanation of truth presents itself here, only in this following and 17th way do we then see the beauty of marriage, it really summarizes everything that we've seen to this point. If that husband is committed to following God, the wife will have no difficulty following his leadership and submitting to him because she will understand he loves her just like Jesus loved the church. By the same token, if that wife is committed to following the things of God, the husband will have no difficulty being a faithful husband to her because after all, she, just like the church is the bride of Christ, she will be a loving, committed, faithful, and devoted companion to His in every way. So if each are committed to the way of God, what a blessed and beautiful estate that it really is. In summary to this lesson today, and in fact to the entire series, might we at least contemplate and comment that marriage continues to be a marvelous blessing to the human family one in which we see that environment in which individuals can enjoy a respite, a break from the terribleness that Satan wreaks in the world about us. But marriage will take effort on the part of the two because they must be committed to the things of God. And of course, that leads to these 16 or 17 characteristics that we've studied over the last three weeks. As we each analyze ourselves, are we in the faith? In 2 Corinthians 13.5, that question is asked, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. If you can't say that with assurance this morning, why not make things right between you and your God? If you come forward today, it's not because of us that are gathered here. Your primary desire must be to be right with Him. We will joyously assist in whatever way that we can. We'll pray for you if that's the need of your life. If you need to be immersed, baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38, there will never be a better day than this one, the 4th of September, 2011. If we could assist you in either of those ways today, why not, if you would, in haste, let that be known, while together we stand and while we sing.